A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 165 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the 50 shades of Luke and Leia, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. 50 shades of Leia. If that's about Luke, something is really, really wrong, and they've gone far beyond kissing. (laughs) <laughs> and it seems like that's what Luke wants at this point. Yes, this is very true. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue to banter on about Dark Horse Comics Star Wars Volume 2 by Brian Wood. Trade paperback number 3, which is single issues number 15 through 18. This episode, we're going to cover 17 and 18 and the covers. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right. We pick up where we left off last time around at the end of issue number 16, but let me give you some quick context and some things to sort of take for granted so we don't get bogged down in certain things. I know last episode, people are probably listening thinking, man, these guys must hate Star Wars. Man, they just, they're so negative. It's because... This is Star Wars Volume 2, and there's a lot wrong with it, and there's a lot of generic stuff kind of screwed up with this particular story. Um, So some things to take for granted. We are not big fans of the artwork here. The environments are cool, the ships are cool, the characters usually unrecognizable because they change between panels, between pages. They speak, always gritting their teeth because their mouths generally don't open so much as their lips part, and they just have the white teeth showing through when they're talking. And they all look like they've basically been beat up or something. They're either constipated, trying to push out a turd, or somebody's holding a small one underneath their nose and causing them to crinkle up their face. They just look off. We've talked about how it is a very generic story in this case for Rebel Girl, and I have issues with the title we talked about last time around, that basically it's a, well, Leia needs to make an alliance with another planet so that the Rebel Alliance has a home and... Hey, she can just marry somebody, very much like the whole thing with bringing in the Hapes Consortium with her marrying Iceholder back in The Courtship of Princess Leia. It's a very kind of dull story, generic story, not one that ever affects anything else. Again, it is a throwaway story. 
And the general, who is the villain of the piece, we talked about how the general is never named in the story. He is the primary antagonist, really the only antagonist until Vader enters the picture, and yet doesn't ever get a name. He looks kind of like a Star Wars version of Nick Fury. He also, because he doesn't have a name, we've taken to somewhat calling him Voldemort or he who shall not be named. So here's referring to either of those. That is the general, the bad guy of the piece, who works for the prince that Leia is supposed to be marrying, Caspar, as in Caspar, the friendly prince, apparently. That all being said, though, because we harped on it quite a bit last time, not something to really delve into this time around unless there's specific examples of something that really stands out to make those points. I think we really kind of went very in-depth with those last time. On the other hand, the other big issue with this is Luke's characterization. In the first two issues of this arc, Luke is basically a petulant little emo teenager who puts other people in danger, mouths off, and basically, because he can't be with Leia and she's marrying somebody else, he's acting like a brat, pretty much, at best. He is not recognizable as the Luke that we know in this era in most respects. That, I think, will need to come up again because that doesn't really hit nearly as much in these last couple of issues. It's like his brattiness is confined to when there's not a bigger danger than him losing Leia. And as bigger dangers arise, he does start to act a little bit more like the Luke that we know by the time the story is over. Um, this is the story called Rebel Girl. Again, is issues 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Star Wars Volume 2. If you're picking up the trade paperbacks, this is Volume 3. But remember, Five Days of Sith, the two issues that took place in the regular series before this one, were not collected in trade paperback form yet. They get collected with the two-issue story after this one, A Shattered Hope, into Volume 4, A Shattered Hope in trade paperback form. So the order in which you are reading this, if you're reading that series, is going to vary whether it's by trade paperback or individual issues here. So, we left off. The Rebel Alliance has set up a new base that they're working on on Arachar under Mon Mothma. Having made this deal with the people of Arachar for, among other things, Leia to marry Prince Kaspar to solidify an alliance. Arachar is a planet that's tried to stay out of galactic politics, but now is wanting to get into it. At least the royals are, the people not so much. And this is their way of getting out there into the galaxy and making their place known. By hooking up with either the Rebel Alliance or the Empire, Caspar is planning on it being the Rebel Alliance. Because of this, we really haven't seen a lot with Han Solo being annoyed with Leia's decision, though there's at least a little bit, but Luke has been acting very petulant about it. And in one of his actions, being petulant, basically flying an X-Wing in such a way as to put others in danger and whatnot, he got grounded again from flying the X-Wing. At which point, the general, the aide to Prince Caspar, who's sort of the, the antagonist and doing the machinations behind the scenes with the Empire in all of this, basically volunteers Luke or offers him the opportunity to go with some Arachar rangers into the mountains to do this hike where they're going to change supposedly a power cell and a communications tower type thing up on one of these mountains. And it is essentially a trap for Luke, as we will see playing out here. Uh, for her part, Leia is just waiting for the wedding. But she's already had some butting of heads with Prince Caspar, usually when he's speaking not as himself, because he does have a liking to her. I mean, he does think she's nice and all. He wants her to eventually like him and not make it just be a political marriage. But anytime that he speaks really anything that the general's been putting into his ear, there has been friction between the two. We left off as an Imperial tug, a mo an automated one, emerged over Arachar. They got it sent back out into hyperspace, only it dropped off 
an Imperial probe droid. And that was the dun-dun-dun moment of the previous two. Mark, anything to say to preface this before we start delving into this third issue? You know, we have been a little hard on the art, but I think, you know, you were you were kind in one regard. You mentioned the fact that the planet's artwork is really good. And I think moving forward into this, we're going to get some really good illustrations and examples of that. Uh, you know, I, I there are aspects where I'm really enjoying the art. Uh, but then there are the glaring ones. And, and I think that's the one thing I want to stress to to the listeners out there that my issue when it comes to the art, I'm generally more on the positive side. It is literally just the characters, and it's from time to time that they really morph out badly. Uh, but beyond that, the, the, I find it, the art is pretty stunning. Um, you know, the, the mountain ranges and stuff like that, the, the character profiles from a distant, things like that. That That's working for me a lot. And, and moving into this first issue of, of issue number 17 especially, we're going to see some beautiful mountaintops. So that all being said, we pick up at the Royal Palace at night as an Imperial probe droid, the one that we saw before, slips into the building. Though that's all we see of it for now. And we switch to daylight up at those mountains. Luke is continuing to hike up the mountaintop with these rangers. He has been trying to get in touch with Obi-Wan through the Force throughout most of this story. Hasn't really had any type of connection, probably because, as we said last time, Obi-Wan just kept sending him to Force mail or voicemail because he didn't want to hear Luke gripe about Leia. But now, Luke is actually in danger. So up on the mountaintop, he finally starts to hear Obi-Wan's voice. And it's not just the quick, you know, run, Luke, run, or use the Force, Luke. It's kind of detailed. You know, silence your tongue, Luke, and your thoughts. You are amongst evil. Luke starts to pull his lightsaber out. No, not that. Not yet. So, wow, Obi-Wan really can see what's going on in detail. Wait for this evil to fully reveal itself. Only then will your path forward be clear. Ben, where have you been? Well, you know, we've not been wanting to put up with you. Do not let your grief turn to anger, young one, or your impatience to impertinence. You have much to learn and mastering your thoughts and feelings. So learn what you can from this now. And sure enough, they get up to this tower, and it turns out it's not just a regular communications tower, they're going to send a signal with it to a Star Destroyer. These guys are working for the General, about to join the Empire instead of the Rebel Alliance, and choose the fate for their entire planet, essentially. And apparently, getting Luke out here was all just to get him out of the way, and then kill him. Like, they needed to march him out all this way to kill him. They couldn't have just killed him partway along the way and not had to deal with him. Couldn't have dropped him off a mountaintop or something. No, they took him all the way out here to kill him out by the communications marker. Uh, Luke draws his lightsaber at just the right time, deflects these weird uh, Arachar blaster shots uh, that are supposed to hit him. It's They're odd. They almost look like they're firing electricity, but I think it's just meant to be like energy discharges to go with the blasts. And it says Badao, which makes you think maybe it's you know, a regular blast, maybe it's got some kind of physical projectile. But either way, Luke is able to instinctively block them. There's a couple of shots with the energy from them sort of wrapped around the lightsaber that really reminded me a lot of one of my favorite Marvel comics of Duel with the Dark Lady, where Luke is battling against Lumaya and the energy of her light whip is wrapping around his saber as they're fighting and such. Um, but Luke may have deflected the blaster shots. He doesn't really save himself, per se, because he goes falling backwards off the cliff and yet somehow catches himself on the cliff face that at this point sure looks like it's basically just snow and ice. He's able to climb back up the mountain, and somehow it's 
you know, a big distance away from where he fell. So he climbs up and climbs laterally, apparently, also, and then realizes it took two days to climb up here, and I need to return in about five hours, right? Because it's Leia's wedding day, and he has to put a stop to it because of what he now knows about the plot. I don't know. I found that the, the idea of them turning on him after they just finally started to get to know him a little bit in the last issue, I'm not sure that it was unexpected, per se. Because you kind of know where this story is going from the get-go. As it goes along, it's so very, very generic. But having the Ben angle in there in the conversation, uh, having Luke sort of wind up not really faking his own death, but almost dying and them thinking that he's dead. Again, nothing spectacular, but it plays out well enough to move the story along. And at least he's not being the Luke we saw in the last two issues. This situation seems to have sobered him up emotionally. Well, it seemed like the group was testing his mettle. You know, I mean, like I said, they constantly were talking about Luke being the one hero to shoot down the Death Star and stuff. He was their soldier savant, as they mentioned. So it's kind of like... I kind of like that proving ground type thing. You know, they mentioned right away why they couldn't just fly a ship up. Uh, not in this issue, but last issue about how, you know, they were Rangers and that was how the Rangers always did it. They were, you know, we come from Rangers, we're families of Rangers and, and we always walk up the mountain kind of thing. So you had the reason why we're doing it. And there was that test of his metal aspect. I mean, you know, I love it when they get to the top. The one guy goes, I have to admit, I thought we'd be doing this a few hundred meters sooner. But you made the climb. Well done. He's like, easy there now, don't start acting stupid now. You know, you're like, oh, okay, it's about to go down. But Kenobi said something to Luke before that that made me stop and had to side ponder really quick. You know, he goes, do not let your grief turn to anger, young one, or your impatience to impertinence. And I'm like, what in the hell does impertinence mean? Like, I know I've heard that word before, and I'm 36, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to pull out a dictionary here to figure this out. Which made me stop and think, you know, there's always that constant debate. Is Star Wars aimed for little kids or for adults? And I'm like, with with verbiage like that, this couldn't possibly be aimed at a little kid. And then I stop and I look at this comic in a different light, and it's like, okay, comics are definitely, for the most part, these single trays. This is definitely the medium for adults. Uh, and, and the theme that's going on here, especially, I think I wouldn't be that comfortable with my kids reading. You know, wait, Princess Leia is selling herself to get married for what? So, so there was that side ponder I had during all this, but when Luke gets up there and he starts blasting the bolts back and stuff, okay, so we've got the probe droid already there, okay, we know that the general's already in contact with the Empire, but it's the, it's the verbiage that the, the, the dialogue that the guy in charge, he's all, this isn't an ordinary patrol, and that's not benign hardware behind me. In about 30 seconds, we'll send a coded message to a nearby Imperial Star Destroyer. If your princess does manage to make it to the Royal Dais and marry our prince, it'll be while the Empire bombards your new base from orbit. And Luke's like, no. But I'm like, okay, so why are they going all the way up there to send that message? I mean, you know, if they're already in contact with the Empire... Why go all the way up here to send another message? Or were they sending messages from this point all along? And then further, when Luke starts deflecting stuff back, why not disable that dang thing so they can't send the message? Like, I I don't know. There was that angle, too. I was like, well, way to drop the ball, Luke. (laughs) So when he falls off the cliff, and you mentioned it, too, the, the angling of where he's at was odd because it seemed like he fell down like a big vertical drop and then the angles change and i grew up on a mountain so when luke talks about you know it took him two days to get up there but he needs to get down in five hours 
I can totally understand how he can do it. <laughs> I mean, getting up is always the hardest part. Getting down, I mean, I could spend a whole day climbing up one of the neighboring mountains that have been clear cut, and it would only take me about 15 minutes to run down that sucker if I didn't trip on any of the branches. I mean, you know, getting down it, that that's the easier part. And I like the fact that they illustrated that too. It, it was working in that regard. So I, I dug on that. But yeah, the probe droid, I, I kept stopping and wondering, you know, what, why are they on this mission up there? Unless it was all just to get Luke, and then why wait till then to do it? Unless they were trying to get him at the furthest, farthest point out, and they truly didn't think he was able to make it there in the first place. And then I, I, I question, you know, is that benign bit of hardware that they're talking about? Are they just lying to him to kind of get Luke all riled up? Like, hey, not only are you the best the Rebellion's got, but you're not even possibly going to be able to make it back in time, and we're going to send this message off, so you're hosed. I mean... I, I, there were so many aspects of what was going on there that I was I was confused at times as to what the real deal was. You know, why were they truly there? Because, yeah, what he says makes sense. But then I stop and I go, well, well then why in the hell is the probe droid already there? Why, why do they know that the Star Destroyer is there? Who was contacting them? Obviously, it has to be the general. Yeah, the whole idea of them having a probe droid there already and yet still needing that to contact the Empire, it suggests maybe something... You know, they don't want the transmission to be intercepted, so they're using this special thing that maybe has some special wiring or coding or encryption or something. Um, or maybe the probe droid isn't able to reach beyond the planet. It's needing to go back into orbit to send the message. But yeah, it seems odd that there's sort of a redundancy built in there. So we move to the, to the wedding scene, back essentially at the palace. Han and Wedge, and you know them as Han and Wedge because of what Han is wearing and the fact that he calls Wedge Wedge, certainly not because of the way either character looks in the face. And they're kind of noticing, huh, it's a pretty high security here for a planet that doesn't seem to have a lot of local security problems. Hmm. And sensing something is amiss. We have a quick conversation between Kaspar and the One-Eyed General, General Fury, and they're basically talking about, you know, how the General doesn't approve, but, you know, I... I wish you nothing but joy and happiness. Your sacrifice and sense of duty will not go unrewarded. I promise you, he says to the prince, basically laying it on thick because he knows that things are about to go down. His plan's about to come to fruition. And basically just sort of building up the tension of saying, oh, by the way, as Luke is racing back, don't forget the wedding's about to happen. Uh, just a quick cutting back and forth type of thing. Not really a whole lot to it. We see Luke, who is now in the woods at the bottom of the mountain. And I, and I can totally understand him getting down there in, you know, five hours. It seems a stretch, but they did stop several times on the way up there. They did stop overnight. And hey, there's a really easy way to get off a mountain in, you know, a matter of seconds if you just jump. But Luke is now in the woods at the bottom. And apparently the whole, they don't know that I'm alive. I climbed up over in this other place. I need to sneak back within five hours. It's just out the window because now he's being chased by those very same rangers who at some point realized that he was still alive and was on his way back. They never show us or tell us how that actually happens. Mm -hmm. Luke sets a booby trap, which is interesting. He takes a power pack, basically, from a, a blaster, rigs it up to become an explosive to take out some of the guys after him, although he only takes out, what, one, two, maybe, and others are still coming after him. The thing about that that I found was odd is, is the way he talks about learning it. He's like, I've never used a blaster like this before. Let's see if these old hollow thrillers were accurate. A trip wire connected to the power pack assembly. The blaster set to overload when the circuits crossed. I can hear them behind me. He goes running down. And I'm like, wait, you you got this from watching a movie? <laughs> like, I, that struck me as hilarious. And I'm like, 
wait, you don't even know if this is going to work? You saw this in a film? And I'm thinking, like, how often do we have shows like Mythbusters where they prove that something in a movie didn't work, you know? And I'm like, then there's the other aspect of it. Like, okay, wait. So, obviously, unlike the real world, there is no, you know, federal agency that's regulating what movies can and can't be shown to the children out there. Because if anybody can watch these hollow throwers and make a bomb, well... (laughs) But I just thought that was an odd way for him to have that knowledge of how to make the bomb. I mean, because he is still new to a lot of things in the galactic scheme. So so to have them tie in a way for it and it be in a movie, I thought that was kind of funny. It was a little odd, but to me the oddity was, okay... You're being chased by several different guys here. You're not that great with the lightsaber yet, and you're not at lightsaber range anyway. So if you've got a working blaster, and it appears the power pack was pretty much fully charged, why not keep the blaster? He's betting everything on blowing up the power pack and it taking out all of these bad guys, and as soon as it doesn't, he's screwed! He's about to be killed by a sniper, and the only thing that saves the day is that Ardana, member of Rogue Squadron, Maybe she was out looking for him? Never really says. Just sort of shows up in an X-Wing and blows up the bad guys and saves Luke's bacon and provides him with the faster transportation to get back to the palace and all. But Luke getting back was kind of a... I don't know. I don't want to say it was poorly handled, per se, but it was certainly something that was sort of like, a, we need to get Luke back now. Let's just kind of gloss over this and get him back into the action. Yeah, I have to admit, again, with with the X-Wings and stuff, the art with the X-Wings is cool. Uh, You know, the fact that Luke's running and you can't really tell that Luke's Luke. I mean, the classic jacket and stuff is doing the work there. That works. You know, the the way that the scenes are played out in here when the X-Wings are flying, it totally reminds me of the classic X-Wing comics of Rogue Squadron. I like that. That that tie-in, even though the story doesn't quite line up very well with it, I like the fact that the artwork does. Speaking of artwork, you may have noticed the next page, we wind up back at the palace and we're seeing Leia basically getting, basically getting ready for the wedding. I almost wanted to say fitted, but no, she's getting ready for the wedding and all. Again, you know it's Leia because they're talking about her as Leia. She doesn't really look entirely as Leia. But if you notice, about two-thirds of the way down the page, there's a scene in which it's a guard talking to Luke and Ardana as they're trying to get into the palace. The guard says, this area is restricted. No, listen, we're with the Alliance. We need to see the princess. I know who you are. Face it, kid. She's not your princess anymore. But in the shot where they're first talking to him, it's Luke and the guard and Ardana on the far right. You notice on the far left, I think that's the Joker. Because <laughs> you got a guy with this enormous, cheesing kind of smile, you know? Uh, Yeah, blow up a planet and nobody bats an eye. But get the princess married and everyone loses their minds or something. (laughs) Uh, Just odd. But we finally get the action that really kicks things off for the finale as we see the general inside and he must somehow know that the probe droid is where he wants it to be, although apparently not because it doesn't do what he was intending it really to do. This probe droid is apparently right outside or right close to the room in the palace where Leia is getting ready and Mon Mothma is present to help her get ready. So two major alliance leaders, both in the same room, and he basically presses a button on a remote to send a signal and kaboom! Turns out that that probe droid was essentially a suicide bomber, which of course, you know, always brings to mind... Uh, two things. One, of course, you know, Ahmed the Dead Terrorist from Jeff Dunham, the ventriloquist, and uh, the song by Tripod, 
suicide bomber, right? Aren't you the suicide bomber who blew up the bus last week? And there's the uh, you're not thinking it through aspect of it. So kaboom, big chunk of the palace explodes. And everybody, you know, it's been bombed. You know, the palace has been bombed, as Mon Mothma reports. And not only is that happening at this point, three Star Destroyers have also emerged on the far side of the system heading that way. And it's not immediately apparent that they've been betrayed per se, but it's just the fact that, you know, the Empire has found us. And sure enough, we get a last page of three Star Destroyers and some dreadnoughts and a message being relayed from one of the Star Destroyers, we have arrived, Lord Vader. Which, to me, I'm thinking, oh, Vader is on the scene. Which, you know, adds some menace to it. But it's also another one of those, well, isn't this yet another instance where Vader would be showing up only to lose the Rebels yet again? But we find as we go into the next issue, it's actually not Vader there. The guy's communicating through holonet communications to Vader back on Coruscant, which I thought winds up being a nice twist. But I gotta say, in an era in which terrorism is so much at the forefront of our minds, to have this not just be the typical, all of a sudden they turn around and the guy's holding a blaster on them and that's how the betrayal is revealed, that he basically uses a suicide bombing type thing with this probe droid and blows up a chunk of the palace trying to take them out, essentially like a terrorist bombing. I thought that was appropriate for the time, appropriate for the audience, and a better way of doing that than it probably would have been in many other stories of this ilk. See, I liked Lord Vader twist at the end. I too was like, Oh, Vader's here. And then, you know, we get into the next issue and it tripped you out. The one thing though, that, that I started like tying lines to things with the general and, and the empires. Okay. So when he hits that button, the probe droid explodes. So we know, okay, he's definitely been the one that's been in contact, which we already assumed, but, somehow he's got a device that sets off that specific probe droid. Okay. So you got that aspect where I'm like, okay, how is all this working? I mean, there's almost, I almost wonder like if they should have said he was like an Imperial agent already or something, or where we saw him communicating or had a flashback. I mean, there's so many aspects of what he's doing, why he's doing it. And then why he sent the group up to that tower to send a message anyway, when he had all this stuff that quite didn't fit in, but the way it looks to the rebels it's working brilliantly. I mean, I'm loving the way that that's playing up and stuff and, and the way that Mon Mothma's freaking out when they see that they're showing up. And, and again, that's that picture where you see the dreadnoughts. I love the fact that they brought in the old dreadnoughts and put them in there as well. Uh, I really, I don't know. I mean, it was a weird moment for him to hit that button and for that probe droid to explode because I wasn't expecting him to be tied to that specific probe droid like he was. I was expecting the probe droid to have some other specific purpose. Like, what he was doing with that probe droid, I could see him just planting a bomb and then hitting the trigger and having the bomb go off. That was a really odd twist that I don't know I don't know necessarily if it worked. Yeah, it would have made a lot more sense from a planning standpoint if he had just put a bomb in the room. That way he'd know it would blow up where it needs to blow up and kill who it needs to kill, presumably. But maybe there's just that angle of, well, since not everybody's in on the plot, you don't want that to be found ahead of time. But then again, there's that question of, well, you didn't want anybody to find a probe droid slinking around either. But he could always write that off as, well, that's just the Imperials doing it. I had no knowledge of it, etc., etc. So moving to the last issue, and this is where the action really kicks into high gear, and things kind of come to a very quick resolution really never really reaches the point of feeling fearful in a lot of ways because all the rebels that we know in this story with the exception of some members of rogue squadron 
they're all characters we know must survive. There never really feels like there's a lot of tension at the end of this story, but it ends with a bang, at least. So we pick up with the Star Destroyers on their way to Arachar, and they're contacting Darth Vader back on Coruscant. And I gotta say, of all the characters in this story, Darth Vader is the one that looks like himself and acts in a way that fits the character beyond just being generic and not being against what the character is like, but actually seems to fit the character and play out well. Basically, they're reporting, the Imperials that are on site are reporting what's going on there on the planet, and Vader says, you may begin planetary bombardment. Bombardment, but your allowance for collateral damage among the indigenous population is 100%. The rebels are to be wiped out. Am I clear? So Vader is willing to wipe out the entire planet's populace if it means wiping out the rebels. That is straight up badass Vader at this point. And the Imperial officers are willing to follow it. They're just kind of shocked by it, at least initially. And they're going to move into range to start the bombardment when they get there. Then things start to go awry at least a little bit again. We get a conversation between Vader and Palpatine, who contacts him via holocom. And basically Palpatine is telling him he shouldn't be worrying too much at this point with the rebels giving them too much credit because they're really a nuisance. There's all kinds of other victories to be had instead of just this one. You've earned a level of censure, Vader. Your recent actions were impulsive and reckless, referring back to Five Days of Sith, which if you're reading this as trade paperbacks you haven't read yet, the Empire will prevail today. You personally will not. Be thankful I am compassionate enough and also recognize the good you did and that your punishment was not more severe. Vader, be thankful. And that plays well with Five Days of Sith. I think it's good continuity for this series to have that through line of Vader and the Emperor's displeasure with him and him trying to get back into good graces and everything. On the other hand, the Emperor, while drawn with great detail to the wrinkles on his face, never to me in these panels looks like the Emperor. It's genetic old man, or honestly, it could be old woman. Yeah, Vina Boda. Um, in a cloak. This could be Vima Deboda, mm-hmm. for all that we can tell. This could be Morag from the Ewoks, almost. <laughs> I'm e- exaggerating in that case. Because he really doesn't look like Palpatine. It's generic, wrinkled old dude in a cloak talking to Vader. You only know it's the Emperor because Vader's talking to the Emperor by what he says, not the way he looks like. You know, one of the things that struck me as odd is is the Imperial soldiers, you know, the commanders of the Star Destroyers, the captains, whatever they're called, when they sign off, you know, it will be done. Are you all right, sir? Yes. Yes, I'm fine. Alert the other ships to bring all weapon systems online. I mean, they seem to have an issue with the fact that they're going to have to do an orbital bombardment of the entire planet. But it's like, so? Tarkin's wiped out Alderaan. I mean, this is old hat, Imperials. Come on, get on board. We're supposed to be the bad guys here. Uh, the fact that we see some Imperials still kind of balking at Vader's, I don't know, extreme measures. I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how I feel about that. I mean, I, especially as as I think about things going into new canon. I mean, I've always assumed the Empire when it came to Legends was just almost everybody was bad and evil and they were all into just be doing this stuff. And granted, 
there have been other authors and stuff who've gone and played against that, you know, that there were actual, you know, innocents in the empire and not everyone was bad. And, you know, uh, Peleon was, a, was a dedicated, decent officer and that kind of stuff. So it's nice to see that, that there are some in there, but, but at this point with the death star doing all this stuff, the shock kind of was surprising to me. I did like, though, I did like the fact that there was some questioning going on there and sort of a, a feeling uncomfortable about the orders, but not being willing to question it. I imagine that being very much like uh, the way a lot of Nazi soldiers would have felt, you know, mm. not really quite agreeing with or understanding the orders coming up from or coming down from above, but at the same time not being willing to question it because of their loyalty to uh, the Reich, their loyalty to Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. So the bomb has gone off. Leia and Mon Mothma have made it out of it. And again, you can't tell this is Mon Mothma. She looks like a short-haired Mara Jade most of the time in this <laughs> issue. Um, yeah. But they both have survived, and Leia has a blaster that she hands off to Mon Mothma, who has seen enough action herself that it's not like her being able to fight is an unusual thing the way it's presented here, although we haven't really seen Mon Mothma in a lot of firefights and things like that. But Leia passes the blaster to her and uh, says, Here, take this. You showed up for your wedding day with a blaster? Aren't you glad I did? And there are so many things that ran through my head at the same time. One was, she's got the blaster there just in case something happens at the wedding, which is what we're supposed to expect. The other is, maybe she has the blaster there so that when he starts to take her clothes off, she can say, not so fast, buddy. This is a political arrangement you're not consummating yet. And it's basically, you know, uh, uh, protection from his advances or perhaps uh, uh, rape-proofing herself. Um, <laughs> Or would she take it a step further and assassinate him and blame it on the Empire? <laughs> she could. Um, but another part of me sits back and has to kind of laugh because, remember, in the Legends continuity, and I'm sure this is not something Brian Wood was doing intentionally because, let's face it, he didn't do this much research into the Legends <laughs> continuity. But remember, Leia and Han essentially had two wedding ceremonies or two wedding sequences in the Legends continuity, because there's the one in Courtship of Princess Leia that came out in 94. But a few years earlier, you had Queen of the Empire. You had the sixth book in the Jedi Prince series by Paul and Hollis Davids, and the wedding is interrupted, hence never taking place, and they've retconned it away, saying the Imperials have interrupted it, and therefore um, it just never happens, and then years later, they kind of come back around to it and get married. But... Supposedly, that wedding is busted up by the Imperials. We see them walking towards the altar, and everybody's smiling at each other, and then the book ends. You assume the wedding's about to happen, and it turns out that it doesn't, thanks to the retcon, and supposedly where book seven was going to go. And it strikes me that, you know what? Maybe Leia should be carrying blasters at weddings, because apparently later on, she'll have a wedding ceremony that gets interrupted by an attack. So maybe it's a good idea for her to have it. And thank goodness she's wearing this big, billowing dress to get married, so it makes sense that she would have had it hidden under the robes somewhere. If this was something where she was, you know, slave Leia or something, and she suddenly pulled a blaster out of somewhere, I'd wonder where she kept it. <laughs> so she winds up, uh, Mon Mothma and Leia wind up being attacked by these guards that start to storm in, apparently on the general's orders. And not only is Mon Mothma firing away, Leia gets her hands on one of the blasters from one of the guards. It looks almost like a machine gun. And they take out the, the guys coming after them. They're very formidable women here. And they are on their way out and activate something that wasn't told to the people of Arachar. There is a secret weapon at the base that thanks to plans brought by Perla, see, she does have a role to play other than being just there to say, hey, remember these previous arcs. They've built an ion cannon, 
a, an echo base ion cannon type thing, which makes you wonder if this is supposed to give some relevance to Perla and say this is how they got the plans for the one they had on Hoth. Kind of like what I thought. Yeah, yeah. kind of like Rebel Heist saying here's how they got the power generator stuff. But basically, they built this ion cannon, and now that they're in trouble, she's having it activated. It's the first thing they really got activated on this new Rebel base. So, haha, the Imperials are in for a surprise. I did kind of like the whole, you know, not necessarily trusting the Arachar and, and going through and having the Ion Cannon built. Not sure I'm a big fan of the idea that the that the information had to come through Perla and that it may have a connotation into Empire. So I think we've already seen some information about how Echo Base was built and where that cannon came from. But, again, strong female characters and a cool twist with the Ion Cannon. the one twist in this that actually felt like a twist in the entire story. Yeah, I like the Ion Cannon twist because while Perla was the one that brought it, Han was the one that really got it done. I, I thought that was an interesting little twist that Han had a hand in getting the Ion Cannon. At least I assume that's the Ion Cannon that they later use on Hoth if they get it off, which I couldn't imagine them leaving it behind. But I'm like, oh, my God, you got this huge cannon now on the surface of the planet. You've got to get it off the planet. Like, I'm like, you can't leave that equipment behind. Uh, you know, strong female characters, though, there was something about this scene that and I, I don't know, maybe I'm completely off base with this, so I'm going to throw it to you. But I kind of get the feeling that in some ways Leia to Mon Mothma is the Darth Vader to Mon Mothma's Emperor Palpatine. Okay. I mean, I guess there's sort of the apprentice angle, the the rebellion's top leader who is also a diplomat now, someone who's, you know, in many ways, kind of like a second in command, though not really, depending on the situation, who's kind of an apprentice in that sense. But I, mean, I, I don't see the same kind of connection. That's, I thought you were. I that's thought it, you were right going, there in a nutshell. I thought where you were going was the idea of Mon Mothma being like a surrogate mother for Leia, as the mother to give her away, for instance, perhaps in place of Bale and Bria at the wedding. Well, that because they were there too. preparing together. No, it's more like, you know, Mon Mothma's the one that's in charge. She's doing all the leading and stuff. And yet Leia has got this dual role where she's also enforcer. She she can do what she needs to do. She can lead troops if she needs to lead. And she does the fighting. Uh, whereas Mon Mothma will step in and, and do fighting when the time comes. But, I, I mean, I, I guess in that aspect, I'm really looking forward to that new Sith Lords book as it comes out where we get to see Palpatine and Vader side by side. Because we don't really get that that much in Legends. But... When it comes to Leia and Mon Mothma, we usually see those two quite a bit, and it's Leia's role that seems to be the one that's more nebulous. Mon Mothma is always in charge. Leia's a leader, but she's also a warrior. And I mean, for me, I think that's where, where this story becomes more Leia's, because she's the rebel girl. Like I said in the last episode, I mean, it, it's not her being the rebel princess, it's more about her finding her place as the rebel girl. And it's not her being Princess Leia, but the rebel Leia. And, I mean, I think for most of that, it comes from the prince's point of view. I mean, he's starting to see her as more than just the trophy. You know, when, when she first showed up, he's talking about, oh, I missed you so much. And when you think about it from his standpoint, you know, he comes from a society where arranged marriages and stuff like that are normal. I'm sure his parents were probably arranged marriage. You know, you come in and you, you know sooner or later you're going to love this person. Eventually they're going to be the one and all that. And she's destined to be mine kind of things. And yet he's starting to slowly see that there's a whole different side to her than the reality of what royalty to his planet means. And so, I don't know, there's these different angles at play with the characters that are worked. I stop and I think about from time to time. Things move pretty quickly from there. You've got 
uh, Han and Wedge and Chewie outside trying to find a way in to help Leia, trying to find a way to make sure that she and Mon Mothma are safe. You've got uh, Ardana up in an X-Wing and seeing... It's kind of interesting. They're like these little... Uh, it's a, almost a mosque-style top, uh, some Middle Eastern-style architecture to these buildings. Looking down on it and seeing a flag that sure looks like it's not the traditional Arachar flag. It looks like it's a symbol of uh, the general taking over. How do we know it's it? Because it's black and red, just like what he wears all the time, and like that probe droid and everything. And inside, we have a conversation going on between the general, Voldemort, and Casper, the prince. And we found out that he's had the king and queen apparently killed off-screen sometime, and that's just kind of dropped as a quick reference here in a line of dialogue that gets no play beyond that whatsoever. We find out that the general is wanting to sign up with the winning side, hence trying to make a deal with the Empire, and you know, basically thinking that Caspar was an idiot for wanting to attach himself to this weak rebel woman, and the general gets right up in Caspar's face, I guess not thinking he's a threat. Caspar is able to reach down, grab the general's pistol from his holster, and shoot him. Or at least I'm assuming he's shooting him. It says, Kachoom. It must be one of those moments where we're meant to like see the face reaction and not see the actual shot itself, because the shot we see after that has a smoking gun with the smoke seeming to go to and through the general, which is an interesting effect, but it also kind of makes it look like he shot him with a fart cannon. <laughs> no, I really like that part. I, I thought it was really cool for Casper himself, you know, and, and I, I think too, it was while he was up close because the general shoves him up against the wall, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I think that scene played out really well in the tomb. You know, I, I kind of felt like he pulled that trigger while he was pressing it up against his belly. And then the next scene, you see him stagger back and the smoke coming from both sides of him and, and to, to the barrel tip. But yeah, it does give the weird fart cannon type look, but I thought it was a really cool scene for the prince, especially because there are moments where you're like, you felt like this guy's been being played, but now you're like, okay, what's his metal? What is he made of? And in come Han and Chewie, because Wedge is getting back to his X-Wing to get into uh, to the air to help the Rebels evacuate and all. In come Han and Chewie, and basically they're a little too late because the General's already dead. They're taking out some of the guards around him. The General has this odd thing where all of a sudden he starts calling Casper's son all the time, where he's basically telling him, you're an idiot, this is all going to end badly for you, etc., etc., uh, you know. Uh, they saw things the way I do, your parents, that is, before I had them killed. And it winds up being Luke that saves the day, really, because one of the guards is able to pull a blaster and put it to the back of Casper's head, and Luke jumps in and slashes it with his lightsaber, cutting the blaster in half before that can happen. But I want to take note of the top left panel on this page. Han and Chewie have come in. Chewie looks kind of like he's floating, if you look at him. Doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. to be any rhyme or reason to how he's standing. I don't know if they're meant to be jumping in through a window or something or what, but Chewie looks like he's floating. And Han is holding a blaster to this guard, and it appears that he's already killed the guard. He must be saying, you know, where's the princess to Casper? Because we've got a pretty gory moment here. Am I wrong, or is it supposed? are we supposed to be seeing that Han has just pulled the trigger and this guy's head has exploded into a big old splat of blood? It does look at that, but the weirdest thing is that every rifle... Every lightsaber has had a 
and Hans has nothing in this moment. But the action definitely makes it look like he just blew the back chunk of that guy's skull open. Because that is a bright red meat flap hanging off the back of that guy's neck. Or what's left of his head. Yeah, it's definitely a brutal moment. So with that, very quickly, the bad guy's dead. And our heroes are just kind of standing around like, oh, that was easy. What's to do next? Casper is realizing what's happening. You know, less than an hour ago, I was about to be married. Now my entire world's fallen apart. Such betrayal. The general, who still doesn't have a name, was my tutor since childhood. And you still never called him a name? And he sold my family out to the Empire. And Luke, and I, you gotta love the way Luke is drawn in some of these panels here. It's, what is up with his hair? I mean, it's swooshing out like he could jump and just sail based on the gliding that he could do off of these wings built into his hair. And he offers Casper a chance to join the Rebel Alliance. He says, no, I'm a king now. My family carved this palace out of the rock dozens of generations ago. I won't see that history undone by traitors or Imperials. I'm staying to make this right. And he's asking how Leia is doing at this point. But it's interesting that Casper... I mean, it's not like Han or Luke ever liked the guy, but they didn't dislike him because of who he was. They disliked him because of him getting to be with Leia. So we end with Luke making that offer, even later on saying, you know, are you sure you don't want to come with us? And Luke and he being able to shake hands. I like the fact that they gave that resolution to it, and they didn't just leave it with Luke being this petulant teenager. He still certainly was, and it was very much out of character for him, but by the time we get to this last issue... I don't want to say that he's matured past it so that he can see the prince and be willing to shake the man's hand because he's not seeing past the prince marrying Leia and being willing to say it's okay because the marriage is now off. The thing that was causing him to be petulant is gone. So, of course, now he's going to be more positive toward the prince or be able to. But at least they didn't leave it hanging. They gave us a little bit of reconciliation between these characters who were at odds because of the situation and not really any direct interaction between themselves. I like that they pulled that off, even though it seems odd to have just these moments of, let's just have some casual, chill conversation while the palace is burning and all the battles are still going off elsewhere. It seems like that should be the the end or the epilogue of the story, and yet the battles are still happening. You almost wonder if like they stopped as they're about to write this last issue, and they went back and were like, oh man, we really made Luke a douche. We gotta we gotta make him like forget get some forgiveness here let's have him apologize or, or give him some kind of a apologetic moment so at least the readers feel like he's not a total bag when it's all over with well it turns out that leia and mom mothma have already stolen a ship they're already getting out of there at this point so our male heroes all run back to the millennium falcon to get into space mom mothma orders the ion cannon to fire it actually turns out that there's two ion cannons to fire on the star destroyers and i like the imperial arrogance up there and what I know is not intentional, but certainly sounds in my head as a little bit of a vanilla ice reference. We have, we caught them napping, Admiral. As expected. Down to the rebel fleet, desperately initiating evasive maneuvers. Pathetic. Target all ships. We'll do this quick and simple. As opposed to quick and nimble, because he goes crazy when he hears a hi-hat with a souped-up tempo. He's on a roll. It's time to go solo. Uh, <laughs> you may fire when re- Admiral, we're being fired upon. Our deflectors can surely handle anything the Reb... And then, boom, they get nailed by the ion cannon. And granted, the ion cannon shot doesn't look like it does in the Empire Strikes Back, where it's one bolt, and when it hits, 
you get the electricity flowing around the ships. It's more of a continuous stream, almost like a lightning gun or an arc cannon type of thing. But it zaps the living crap out of those Imperial ships, which allows the Rebel ships to blast the living crap out of them and just utterly destroy them. We get this glorious image. I'm not going to say it's a glorious image, to use your terminology there, of the ships when they're being hit by the electricity, because the electricity still seems kind of weird to me. But when the ships are going down and you have a Star Destroyer basically where the the T-shape type thing, where the bridge and everything is, has completely ripped off the ship and the rest of it is going down in flames, that is an awesome image. Again, this artist is great a lot of times with the ships and the environments, just cannot handle the faces well at all. Yeah, of those destroyer shots, the one I really enjoy is the one where you see the ships from the background as they're actually blasting on it before it gets to that one. You're seeing it from the background uh, right behind where the thrusters are, and it goes up towards where the, the command cone is, and you see him blowing up from the side. That looks just glorious. Uh, you, you went right past one of the things that drove me nuts, though, about this story. Uh, Rogue 6 becomes Rogue 5, one panel right before this. And I'm just like, every time I'm reading it, like, what am I misunderstanding? They must have slipped names there because suddenly the blue Twi'lek is going, lead, this is Rogue 5. We're all on station, save for Luke. It's been a bit rough. The palace was equipped with surface-to-air missile batteries. Was? Destroyed with the barest minimum of property damage. Appreciated, 5. I, Rogue Squadron, come in. This is home one. But it's like even Wedge is calling her 5. I'm like... Okay, so she's using the wrong name and he's using the wrong name. Obviously, somebody who was doing the lettering at this point, either this is when they just jumped in or or something, or they were sick that day and someone else stepped in because it's like, what in the hell were you doing? That really threw me off. I mean, I don't know. I, I, can, I, I think I can explain that, though. Okay. I'm wondering if what they were going with was the idea that maybe Brian Wood didn't realize that call signs carry on from mission to mission. Like... You know, Rogue Leader will be Rogue Leader, sure, but also Rogue 2 will be Rogue 2, Rogue 4 will be Rogue 4, mission to mission to mission. Because we have him having Wedge give them their call signs, Rogue whatever, back in that earlier issue in this arc. And now Luke has been grounded. So in theory, if Rogue 5 has been grounded, and it's a mission by mission thing then wouldn't that mean that somebody else is five and everybody has just shifted in the order or something? That the, the order doesn't stay the same from mission to mission. Maybe that's the way that Brian Wood is thinking of this, is what I'm and, thinking. That maybe it's an error in understanding the naming convention, not an error in giving her the wrong number. But she literally upgraded in this battle, because if we go back right before the general got shot, she goes, Rogue Six to flight! Are you seeing any of this? And she's talking then, oh no, no, you're uh, right. No, okay. you are right. The guy saying Rogue Six is not the Blue Twi'lek. There is a different Rogue Six at this point. Uh, okay, I will I will accept that gratefully. Okay, yeah, no, that, that works. That actually does work. Because when I do go back to that other one, it did throw me off. And I was like, oh, well, maybe they just got her skin color wrong. No, no, they actually, that does make sense. It happened God knows when, but apparently maybe Luke got officially kicked off of Rogue Squad. What if Luke doesn't ever... Well, of course, you know, it's a whole different storyline now. But if they were to ever continue, if Brian Woods was to continue, maybe he planned for Luke to never be a, a rogue again. I mean, uh, that would be an interesting twist. Especially uh, given the fact that, you know, he's commanding Rogue Squadron in Empire. 
that'd be good point. I mean, that'd be a different things. different story to see. I mean, if if he gets kicked out of Rogue Squadron here, what did Brian have uh, in mind for the character? It's definitely a different character than any I've been used to, so it would definitely be something I wouldn't be expecting. So we have basically two final sequences here. One is Vader coming to a realization of what he needs to do that I swear we've seen quite a few times before. I can't pin down a specific source, but this decision of his really feels familiar. Because never again will I sit back as others fail and fail again to end these rebels. The hunt will be mine to command and mine alone. Is it just me or have we not had him say, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm not going to trust anybody else anymore because they failed in hunting down the rebels plenty of times before. Yeah, it does seem like a, a theme, whether it be him going after Jedi or other things. He definitely gets fixated on stuff. And Palpatine has always been like, well, the Jedi aren't a threat. The rebels aren't a threat. You need to focus your, your you know, focus elsewhere. And honestly, Palpatine, that's where he's screwing up. He should be like, yeah, take everybody. Go and get this over with. Get this out of your system. Wipe them out, all of them. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it does seem like a theme that comes up, whether it be the Rebels or the Jedi. It definitely sees that Vader is the type that likes to go back and, and finish off loose ends. He doesn't like to leave anything to chance. And we end with a scene that I can't help but when I read this, hear the music really from the end of The Empire Strikes Back in my head. When we go back to the Rebel fleet and we wind up seeing Luke getting his hand worked on and whatnot. That music that's just sort of, it's not exciting music, it's that sort of emotional low that, I don't know what we're going to do, but at least that's over. That type of feeling. As the ships are flying off, Leia is talking to C-3PO and R2-D2. Yes, 3PO, what is it? I have a message from Master Luke. He would like you to know that he's holding a message for the prince for you. Basically, the prince wished her well and such, and asked Luke to pass it along. Yeah, it was literally short. It was, please relate to her that I wish her a long and happy life. She says, from the prince, a message? Later, 3PO, or perhaps never. Your Highness? Erichar was a mistake, and one I'll have to live with. The prince didn't deserve what we did to his world. And while I hold the Empire ultimately responsible, and as she's saying this, we're seeing the fleet now going into hyperspace to leave. So it's like a voiceover as the ships are leaving. Again, very much feeling like I can hear that music in my head from Empire. Until the day we can make them pay for their actions, their deceptions, and exploitations of innocent worlds, I will carry the guilt for the Prince and for Arachar. And the ships jump to hyperspace. It's empty space. And for a lot of people, and I believe you were one of them at the time, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. I was. It's a bit of a, what? moment because after the final panel in blue it has the end and since this was nearing the end of this series and the big announcement had been made about the change over from dark horse to marvel for a lot of people the thought was wow this is the end of the series but no we still have two more issues which is one more storyline and if you're reading the trade paperbacks a whole nother volume still to go i will say as much as that ending was kind of quick and kind of pat, and Vader's part in it was kind of something we'd sort of seen before, the destruction of the Imperial vessels, Vader's brief moment, and just the visuals of it, the way it's drawn, and then Leia's little sort of Dinauma type thing here at the end that leads us out, 
I thought the ending of it was stronger than the rest of this story in many cases really seemed to deserve. Mm -hmm. And it would have made a decent ending, I think, still to this series. Instead, we have a two-issue story arc that's coming that isn't anything particularly great, isn't anything particularly bad, but is so brief and just kind of nyeh and there that I almost think that the series probably should have ended with this because at least it would have ended with a four-issue story arc that ended with an ending that felt like it was designed as the end of a series. Yeah, this one, I was totally convinced it was the end with, with the end at the very end. And when you look at the last page, you know, yes, it shows you the cover of the next issue, but it says four against the galaxy. It doesn't say it's issue number 19 and all. And then when you see June Star Wars, you see the issue you just read number 18. You don't see number 19. So it did give you that feeling like, oh, oh, this was it. And I remember saying, you know, oh, what a good ending. And then, oh, there's, there's still two more issues. Whoopsie, sorry. Uh, you know, there were some things about the ending. The fact that she didn't want to hear the message, like, I get for the sake of from her storytelling point why she did it. But it did strike me as odd because it wasn't like it was a big message. I mean, it was really, it was just, you know, he didn't hold a grudge. He wished her all the best. And the fact she never learned that was, I don't know, it just it struck me odd. It was, I don't know exactly how I feel about that. It you know, makes sense to the end, but it left me feeling weird. I was kind of torn on it also. I think this is one of those instances in which it's the less obvious choice, right? The less obvious choice, instead of her hearing the message and feeling guilty or whatever, to have her ex sort of express that guilt and that feeling by not choosing to listen to it. It's like... You know, the person not wanting to read the breakup letter that's left for them. They realize it's a breakup letter because a person's taken all their stuff and walked away, but they don't want to read it as if it's, you know, going to change their perception. Like maybe she was starting to finally become sweet on him. The closest thing I could think of to this. Peter Quill? Uh, uh, no, well, yeah. You'd say Peter Quill not wanting to open up that uh, gift until everything's done in Guardians of the Galaxy. But no, I was thinking of the letter left by. Uh, oh, what was her name? The, the Katie Holmes character who was recast in the latter, the, the second Batman oh, film. Uh, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Leaving the message for Bruce and how Alfred has to decide whether or not to let him read it and what effect would it have on him. In that case, the decision made by somebody else. But it's sort of that same, huh? You know, when something is ending and this tale is concluding, should the last words be said? Or should the last words simply be kept for another day when the emotional scars of what's just happened aren't nearly as raw anymore? So I found that kind of a surprising choice, but a welcome one because it wasn't just the standard, well, oh, here she is looking at a hologram of him or hearing a message from him and then, oh, how sad, we're done. Well, speaking of how sad, I think for me that's, that's one of the things about Star Wars Volume 2 and Legends Moving On is it's one of those how sad because it's not one I would recommend. And I'm one of those that I want you to go out and read everything Legends, but this one kind of rewrites over some really good stuff. It's, this is one that, that I would almost be in the camp of you could go without ever reading this one and your knowledge of Legends would not be hampered in the slightest. Uh, it, it is interesting in what it does for Leia's character. It is interesting in the same time for what it does to Luke's character, but not in the same way. What it does for Leia is more of a positive thing. What it does for Luke is a very negative thing. I, I did not like that. I I mean, there were times where Luke's story got okay, but for the overall, when I think Star Wars, I think Luke's story. And 
this was just a tragedy in that regard as to what they did for him. I mean, I, I don't want to ever go back down that trail again and again. I mean, please, with the new canon, can we just avoid that whole era of his life? Yeah, definitely not one that I would recommend either. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't recommend this series. But in particular, I mean, Five Days of Sith, really actually when it first came out, it did give me hope that maybe this series was going to get better. And maybe it would have if it stuck to characters that beyond Vader were new characters to us, perhaps. But as soon as they go back to the classic characters again, it's back to the generic throwaway stories, the general nyeh of the tale, tropes it feels like we've seen over and over again, things we know can't happen being suggested to happen, like Leia getting married, so you kind of know where the story's going anyway. Very predictable stuff. And stuff that, again, and I, I think I said this back in the previous episode here when we looked at the first two issues, that it's like you take something that's already meh, and then you add in the artwork choices that are made and, and things like that, not giving the general a name and things like that, and you take something that's already kind of blah and turn it into something that's bad, or at least something that, while not being a bad story per se, is not something you could recommend because it is a significantly flawed piece of work. Um... Again, I think this could have made a good ending for it, at least, you know, as far as this series went. But we do still have two issues to go, which we'll be looking at in our next episode. A Shattered Hope, when we check it out. Uh, that, I think, is is a name highly appropriate to this series. Everybody seemed to want something awesome and amazing from Brian Wood's Star Wars. As soon as it started leaking out that he wasn't going to necessarily be sticking to previous continuity and whatnot, and then we started getting these issues and scratching our heads as to why they made such a big deal out of it, this series became a shattered hope. Bring in a superstar writer, that does not necessarily mean you're going to get an awesome Star Wars series. It may mean you get something mediocre that just happens to have a superstar's name on it, a la, say, Choices of One and Survivor's Quest with Timothy Zahn. Yeah, it's like rolling up on a circus train pile up on the side of the uh, railroad tracks. Everybody's stopping and looking. I mean, that, that's really what it felt like when those comments about what Brian was doing and, and what he was and wasn't paying attention to with the finer details, it became like, well, let's just watch and see where this goes next. And when the first few issues came out, you know, it was like, well, you know, everybody's being really negative on this. We need to see where it goes. But then eventually it just got to that point where even the most positive of fans were like, yeah, that that was just junk. Uh, and I, that's definitely something moving forward in a world of Marvel. I hope we definitely move away from. I don't like the fact that the last few stories that Dark Horse gave us weren't knocking out of the ballpark home runs. They were barely a bunt. They barely even got the first base. Uh, that that really, I think that's the the worst thing about this series was that it fell so far from you know a high pedestal that it could have been on, or that they were saying it was going to be on. And if I may say so, I think by the time this episode is actually released, because we've got a few already recorded and whatnot, folks probably would have already had the chance to pick up and start reading Heir to the Jedi. We don't get this kind of Luke in Heir to the Jedi. Heir to the Jedi handles the character very well. And it's in around the same time period that this would be, but in that story group canon. Uh, you want to hit the covers before we head out of here? 
Yeah, we have four of them here uh, and one trade paperback. Uh, the trade paperback, of course, I don't have, so I will let Nathan discuss that one as we get to it. Uh, number 15 is the one with the Princess Bride. It's got Princess Leia on the front. We've got four X-Wings and what looks to be the moon up above her in the valley, uh, the castle, the steps. She's wearing a wedding gown. She's got the classic double bun, which, honestly, I really could never stand the double bun look. So going back to that, well, I get why they did it. I was kind of like, eh, artistically bad choice, but choice uh and she's got a gun held off to the side in her right hand which when you first look at it, it almost looks like she's got a cane and it gives her this old lady look and the green that they use with the yellow around her and the i don't know how to dare say softness the unfocusedness of it all is really odd it almost has like an old painting feeling because there's these two like planter things on the side and it almost looks like they got spider webs on them or like the paints cracking like this looks like somebody had painted a painting of her and that you'd see this like in some kind of old museum or something i'm not really a fan of that one per se uh the 16 one is friendly fire and it shows the x-wings uh racing across the plains and it almost gives you the illusion that the x-wings are firing on one of the other x-wings uh i think though that this one is probably one of my favorites of them all uh next to which is issue 17 Watch your step, Luke Skywalker, as one of the uh, rangers are kicking Luke over the edge. And Luke's got this funny look on his face as he's like trying to reach up and grab the guy. And a bunch of the snipers are aiming at his back. Uh, the detail on that one, I, I don't know. There's something about the grittiness into it I'm really enjoying. 18, uh, and I think this might be the cover of the trade. I'm not exactly sure. It's the wedding day destruction. And it's got all the cast and crew that are the big ones here. You got Chewie, Han, Luke, Leia, and Wedge with Vader behind them and a bunch of ships and stuff. I like this one because the character likenesses on this are probably the best that you get throughout the whole series. <laughs> so you got that. But overall, the covers on this are pretty weak. There wasn't any that were like, oh, I got to have that as a screensaver. Yeah, I got to agree. Pretty weak covers this time around. Uh, the Princess Bride. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We see what you did there. Uh, it, nothing to write home about. It's like It's very old-timey painted type look to it. Uh, the color scheme when looking at this, uh, where it's got the sun in the background giving us a bit of yellow and then most of the rest of it is in green, uh, made me really think that they could use this for a Sprite commercial. You know, lemon-lime and everything. Number 16, <laughs> with the, the X-Wings flying, not terrific. I find it interesting here. You notice it's not an X-Wing chased by X-Wings. It's an X-Wing chased by Z-95 Headhunters. I didn't catch that at first. So it makes ah. you think that this is a rebel being attacked by the people they just gave the headhunters to, which is the militia on Erichar, which is not what's happening at all in the story. So I'm not sure where friendly fire comes in with that one. Um, Luke being kicked off the edge in 17. Again, it's not exactly what happens. He actually just falls off the edge, but it's sort of like what's happening. Watch your step, Luke Skywalker. Makes sense with what's said inside the issue, or what happens in the issue. But in this case, it's not watch your step. It's the dude's about to kick you. And it's not like he's falling off a cliff entirely here because there are people still behind him holding the gun. So he's pushing him down or kicking him down, what, a few feet? Just an odd one. I do like the fact that he's got that expression like, uh, on his face, which <laughs> I think is kind of interesting, though Luke seems to be a little more bulky than one would usually expect. And in general, out of all these, my favorite would have to be 18. But again, it's the valedictorian of summer school here because it's got the cool Vader. And cool poses for the characters together and the ships in the background. It looks very much like a movie poster. It could have been for any Star Wars story. This is the one they used for the trade paperback. Wedding Day Destruction. The term there actually fits within the story. You talked about likenesses. I look at Wedge and I think Wedge is 
close. Not exactly, kind of like a Bruce Greenwood influence to him, but close. Chewie's alright, Vader's alright, Leia's alright, Han's alright. Luke is a woman. Luke's lightness here really doesn't look like Mark Hamill. It's like, what if Mark Hamill put on eyeshadow, got his hair wet, and lost a few pounds, and basically made himself look like a woman? It just, <laughs> that didn't really work for me here. But at least it's the best in terms of poses and the theatrical feel out of all four of them. But yeah, these covers, nothing really to write home about. This is the series that kicked off with Carlos de Anda's awesome interior artwork, and it's been, since then... Very hit or miss, both in terms of covers and in terms of interior artwork. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, and we always encourage you guys to leave us a review while you're at it. Let other fans know what type of show you enjoy. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. And speaking of past episodes, you can find them all at www.StarWarsReport.com slash BeyondTheFilms. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.AudibleTrial.com slash StarWarsReport, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds but the last two issues of this series will pull it out of the crap bin. Or that we're going to see a lot of things being rehashed again in the new canon. And the new canon's new canon. And people griping at us about being so negative about Brian Wood's Star Wars because, dude, it's Brian Wood! He's awesome by default! Yeah, just like Boba Fett, huh? Or what are the odds that people are going to complain that we're covering Legends and being pro-Legends on a Legends podcast that deals with all things Star Wars? Hmm. right on time 32 seconds 31 seconds on that uh auction 29 28 i will wait until 15 to 10 seconds before i snipe it at the end because i'm a dick i'm just that kind of asshole.
<laughs> well, you've had it done to you enough times. It's only karma, right? Oh, man. Okay, 14, 13, 12, 11, oh, 10. Place bid. Doing? Confirm. Did you get it? Jumped. And two, one, zero, and... And... I got it! Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Yep, and I'm always that asshole who's like, well, I'm sure somebody else might bid, like, say, $20, so I'm going to bid $21. But what if they think they're going to bid $21? I'm going to bid $21.92. Like, please tell me Luke didn't go for five more minutes in the refresher thinking of Leia. Now, before we get to... No. Where Luke is continuing to hype up... Hype? Yeah, hyped up like Brian Wood. So kaboom! Big chump of the palace. Chump? Your allowance for collateral damage among the in And Nathan! Saying thanks for listening and don't quote us the oh, shit. What the what? hell? <laughs> My kids walked in. They did throwing me off. I'm almost done. I told you that. Saying <laughs> Saying thanks for listening and May the force be with you. And you may have to say that again because my cat walked up and out and I had it unmuted. <laughs> no, it's your kids, damn it. <laughs> Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you.